one of the things that I think is really important is that we need to acknowledge that in this community, it's still a very different experience to have ADHD as a white man versus a white woman versus somebody who is Black in America versus somebody who's Indigenous in Canada. Who's, all of those experiences are very different and they come with different challenges and we need to hear those voices and we need to magnify those voices because they're really important to getting that well-rounded perspective. And I also think that they're they're really important in chipping away at kind of the systemic racism and the systemic disadvantage that minorities in general face. Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I am your host, Katie Weber. Before we start, I'd like to read this review from Apple Podcasts in Australia. This review is from No Mobile Reception, and it's called Relief. Binging podcasts since diagnosis 18 months ago, age 53, I wasn't wrong, just different. Unfortunately, after years of feeling like I didn't belong, I moved to a remote area in 2001. Hiding, I guess, but realization that it was too hard in the normal world. Found a community, and then we had bushfires twice. Flood, pandemic, at last, women. I'm not on Facebook. I don't have a female ADHD community, so listening is joyful. I smile, sometimes giggle. Thank you. Thank you for sharing these words, and I'm so glad you're finding a sense of connection with these interviews. Feeling lonely is something a lot of women with ADHD have in common, regardless of where we live. And I think part of our journey of self-realization is through hearing these stories of others and feeling like we're not alone. If you're enjoying this podcast and these interviews, please let me know. If it's easier to just press pause and tap those five stars in Apple Podcasts, go for it. But I really do love to hear your stories too, so please share whenever you can. Alrighty, welcome to episode 20, in which I interview Maya Hitomi. Maya is an ADHD coach and academic strategist who supports ADHD, autistic, and otherwise neurodivergent clients to build strategies for better coping. In Maya's own coaching and consulting practice called Structured Success, she builds upon her master's training in psychology, her experience as a coach, and her lived experience as a neurodivergent person. Being ADHD, autistic, and dyslexic herself, Maya credits her own academic and professional success to the coping strategies that she learned along the way. Focusing on collaboratively building the individualized coping strategies to support her clients, Maya helps her clients make the healthier thing to do the easiest thing to do. Maya is my first guest who was actually assigned male at birth, and we talk about her journey over the years to finally get an ADHD diagnosis, as well as differences between the internalized experiences and externalized experiences of ADHD across race and gender lines. We also talk about the importance of recognizing and honoring the vast spectrum of neurodiverse identities. I want to thank Maya especially for her patience with me during this interview. I feel like I learned so much about terminology and identity, and I also learned exactly why we no longer hear about or use the term Asperger's. So I feel like I had a very steep learning curve in this conversation, as you will hear. So thank you to Maya for treating me with kindness and empathy during our conversation. All right, enjoy. 
So I'm super excited to have you on. Full disclosure, when I first started this, I was diagnosed last year and I'm I'm calling it, you know, pandemic diagnosis, a lockdown diagnosis, whatever you want to call it, this proliferation of diagnoses that happened in 2020 for so yeah. many different reasons, but really, you know, the results of the lockdown. And I think all of our structures, all of our routines just were tossed in the air and they all came falling down. And so many people, myself included, like just felt like, God, I can't, I've been managing for a long time and I always knew something was wrong, but I really need to look into this. Um, yeah. And so there's been this proliferation of like memes and, and, you know, all of the talk it feels to me. And again, maybe it's just that like shiny new car feeling like I call it the white Jetta syndrome. I don't know if that's a thing, you know, like if you, when you get a white Jetta, suddenly you notice it everywhere you go. Yep. And so, um, so I've been experiencing that now being relatively new to the community. And so I wanted to, I say, you know, and I realized very quickly that like, as soon as I leaned into this diagnosis, I was joining every Facebook group and following every person I could think of and, and learning as much yeah. as possible about it. And so I want, and I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I was realizing that so much of my own self discovery comes from these intentional conversations that are held. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to start a podcast. And I, you know, and I thought, well, I really want to talk to women who were diagnosed in adulthood, who sort of yeah. then had the same kind of like radical transformation in terms of how they looked at themselves, how they looked at their entire life in this new lens yeah. and, and kind of how their self-talk has changed. And, and then, so I, initially I was sort of reaching out and saying, who wants to talk to me? Is anybody want to have these conversations with me? And then I found you on Twitter and immediately felt like Maya is the adult in the room. <laughs> you have this like nurturing, not, you know, just very knowledgeable, calming sense to even just in your tweets, uh, before I ever like saw you yeah. on video. And so I reached out to you because I really wanted to interview you. And you said, by the way, you know, I'm assigned male at birth. I'm non-binary. Does that fit within your definition of women? And I yeah. stopped because it honestly, I hadn't thought of it yet. Um, so I'm so excited to have you sort of representing this point of view and, but also just like, it's blown my mind because I think about how so much of my own experience has been looking back uh, in my childhood and thinking yeah. about how like I generally had this sense of feeling kind of betrayed by my brain and feeling betrayed by yeah. you know my identity. And I'm just like, add to that a layer of like feeling as though your, your personal identity and gender is not the same as your assigned sex. Like it's blowing my mind. So yeah. I, you know, I be as open as you want to be. Um, but okay. I feel like I'm going to ask, you know, I'm so curious about what your experience was growing up, um, transgendered uh -huh. and having this extra layer of the, of the diagnosis and some, a lot of that kind of like self-deprecation and self-doubt that I've always assigned to ADHD. How do you untangle all of that? Yeah. So, so uh, do, when were you diagnosed, first of all? Um, I did not realize that I was diagnosed until I got re-diagnosed, well, until I went for a, a, a psychoeducational assessment in my 20s. Okay. My parents apparently had a diagnosis for me of ADHD when I was a, a child, but never told me about it. I was never treated for it. Um, and my mom, like, bless her heart, she she did it for 
for what she felt was good reasons. She was like, oh, you're you're just a victim of the system, right? Like you're not like you're you're a smart kid, you like you're a rambunctious, ambitious kid. Like, okay, they just want to put a label on you at school and say that this is the reason for all your bad behavior. I just wish that there was more information for her to be able to use to, to make that decision. Um, but then in my 20s, I went in to see if I could get a diagnosis and the, the psychiatrist completely dismissed me. Um, and I'm like, but this is so similar to my experiences that I continued to go on about my life. And then in grad school, is when I went in for a new psych a psychoeducational assessment to get new accommodations for, for school. And I'm like, oh yeah, could you just like do an ADHD assessment at the same time? And she's like, yeah, I was thinking of adding that in. It seems like it would be a good fit. And lo and behold, <laughs> I, I, um, it was a little bit odd because I don't experience some of the inattentive symptoms or the, the struggles with regulating my attention that a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have a lot of the emotional emotional dysregulation pieces. I have a lot of the hyperactivity pieces. Uh, you'll probably see me spin, spinning around and, and like swaying in my chair and stuff like that because I, I, I have to. Um, so I, it was really, really affirming at point to be like, oh yes, so this thing that I've been thinking about my entire life uh, as a problem is actually a problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and just to, to be able to kind of advocate for yourself over and over again is impressive because I feel like that is something I certainly struggle with. And I, when I hear stories about people who went to their doctor for a diagnosis and were told like, oh no, you're just frazzled or whatever, you know, it's yeah. lower your expectations, that sort of thing. I feel like so grateful that I didn't have that experience. I had the opposite where I sort of questioned, do I have this? I don't know if I have this, is this me? And the doctor was like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I think that's, uh, that's says a lot that you were able to advocate so often and, you know, having been turned away, so to speak. Yeah. And I don't know exactly where that came from, but like, even when I was young, I, I remember going into my doctor's office at 16 and being like, I think I'm depressed. And like the doctor did their quick screening and they're like, Oh yeah, it, it seems like it's pretty mild, but like, here's some medication. Um, uh, perhaps the fact that I couldn't take that medication regularly should have been a sign, but I digress. <laughs> um, but I, even back then, it was one of those things that I just had had in spades. Um, maybe that's a, a helping of privilege of being like raised in a in a way that my voice mattered because I presented at that time as as a little boy that like I was given those tools to be able to be like, oh no. The things that I say are worth saying, and think, and people should at least give me the time and space to do that, which is not in a not a space that's afforded to a lot of young women and girls. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have that conversation with my husband quite often when we he he has to kind of admit that he's like it doesn't occur to me that I wouldn't be good at something, and he's able to kind of break that down and say like yes, like I I wasn't raised with. I wasn't raised with self-doubt, you know, Yeah, that that's a, such a learned behavior. 
so it's interesting to me that you said that your mom kind of recognized that you, that it was the system that was failing you, because that's another thing I think that a lot of us struggle with, which is that feeling of like, what's wrong with me? And that we have to come to that realization that, um, yes, we're a square peg in around trying to jam into a round hole, but it's not our problem. Like the problem is the system that is not serving us. And I think that that's such a major like switch that has to go off in our brains. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it happened a couple times for me, even though my mom noticed it, like I, I looking back now, I I'm like, Oh yeah. The anger that I was experiencing, the emotional dysregulation that I was experiencing when I was young makes a lot of sense. The being bored. I remember this super embarrassing moment where my, my mom came in for like a parent teacher interview. I was in like grade two or grade three and the teacher pulled me aside and like was go- went through my desk with me and was like, I want to advocate for you. I want to support you in because you're you seem to be able to do all these things, but like half of your assignments are just stuffed into your desk. <laughs> can you do one of them for me right now <laughs> so that we can have this conversation with your mom? And I'm like, it was just like the most like embarrassing thing that I could imagine at at like eight years old (laughs) I've had a lot more embarrassing things happen since but (laughs) it's just like like all of those things are just like things looking back that I'm just like well that should have been a sign (laughs) wow so it's interesting when I'm still, I'm sorry, I'm like still sort of untangling some of this, you know, the idea of of identity, you know, and how the experience is so different for boys and girls growing up in society and, and sort of the symptoms that are overlooked. And so you mentioned like that, you know, ways in which you were afforded the privilege of, of being believed because, um, because you presented as a boy. And so I'm like, are there other ways in which you've thought about, uh, what are your observations about that difference in term, you know, from an, with um, an ADHD lens, um, when we talk about the differences in terms of how it presents itself, uh, what are ways in which you relate to women and and what are ways in which you sort of relate to men and their experience? Yeah, yeah I, I'm going to actually change the language just a little bit because I feel like focusing on gender kind of makes it very much like a, an either or thing. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that like all women don't have the same experience growing up, although our society does push uh, push boys in one direction and women in another direction. Um, I, I think that the way that I like to describe it is an internalized experience of ADHD versus an externalized experience of ADHD of like, do I wear that as like internal to me? Am I the person who has been trained to zone out by staring out the window and nobody sees me like not paying attention except for me because I'm quiet, I'm kept to myself or am I the person who's bouncing around the classroom? Um, And a lot of the traits kind of have that toggle right between externalized and internalized so like that that struggle regulating attention could be internalized versus externalized but so can hyperactivity of like hyperactivity could be completely internalized with the mind whereas it could be a very externalized in terms of movement um, and I would say that I had a lot of externalized behaviors when I was young um, 
but I didn't realize it because of the environment that I was in. So I was a trained swimmer, like a professional swimmer, up until the age of 17. And I'm going to say, when you're hyperactive, there's nothing like four hours of exercise every day <laughs> to get that hyperactivity out of you. Yeah. Um, however, it was also, uh, there was also a lot of internalized, internalization of that as well, of like, while I was swimming, my mind would just go spinning and spinning and spinning. And I remember after the 9-11 attacks, so 2001, I was probably, oh, geez, doing math, 13, 14. Um, and I'm swimming and I'm just like, my mind is just going over and over the worries. Like, that's one of the biggest times that I had of rumination that it was just like, over and over in my mind, I'm just like, what happens if, what happens if, what happens if? And that's kind of um, something that I struggled with for a long time as well. So it's kind of weird that I had kind of the mix, the mixing of those two things. Of like I had a bunch of externalized things that a lot of boys would experience, but I also had a lot of the internalized experiences as well mm -hmm. that perhaps people didn't see. And if they did see it, maybe, maybe they would have recognized it for what it was. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 That reminds me of the, the people pleasing aspect. You know, often I think we sort of, yeah. we talk about the, how the hyperactivity is internalized or that it becomes daydreaming. And a lot of the struggles that happen in school, in a school environment where we, you know, your, your motivation often ends up being people pleasing if you're a certain kind of child. And I, we talk about people pleasing a lot. And, and is that learned? Is that is that not learned? I mean, is that something? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if we have the answer for, for that. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think it brings up so many interesting questions about you know the different ways in which it's presented and how and what brings that to what brings that to the fore. Is it is it something that is a learned behavior? Is it a nurture nature nurture? So many interesting nature nurture questions. Um, yeah. Around. In childhood, my son actually, he's nine and has not been diagnosed. And I think um, we, I'm so newly diagnosed. And so, of course, as my 13 year old daughter likes to tell me, like, when mom has ADHD, everybody has ADHD <laughs> because I think I'm like, you know, I'm hyper analyzing everything everybody does. And I'm pretty much convinced both my kids have it, but it, it presents itself in such vastly different ways in the two of them. And my son is a people pleaser. And so he yeah. has a lot, uh, he he's not a disruptive, he doesn't have the disruptive hyperactivity that I think is, is what gets boys noticed so much in childhood. Um, but he is, he has the emotional as element, I think even more severe than I did at his age. Um, it just in terms of, of feeling just so overwhelmed and just feeling like such a failure the minute he gets off his you know because it's remote learning the minute he gets off his zoom he just he just falls apart um yeah because it was going too fast and he couldn't ask questions and he's confused and and so he just like gets so wrapped up and wrapped up that by the and, and wound up that as soon as he can hit leave meeting um he just you know absolutely falls apart and and i relate to it so deeply <laughs> um <laughs> But it's interesting because I don't think he, I don't think I would have ever thought he had this if it wasn't for this experience of remote learning I, because I haven't, because he wasn't disruptive and he's also not hyperactive. So I think he has a very, an experience that a lot of, a lot of um, 
the women I talked to had a similar experience as children because that we tend to fall into those categories. And but absolutely, you know, yeah. I please any language I'm using that feels um like it could be tweaked, absolutely let me know, please, because I feel like I'm such yeah, on, on on this learning journey. You're such a like I said, I feel like you just have such a kind I mean the the community in general I think is incredibly kind and supportive I think we tend to have a lot of empathy because we've struggled so much and so that's fascinating to me because there has been this new awareness and this new proliferation of of diagnoses how has yeah. is the community changing are are you thinking about that at all in terms of like is it feeling almost like a fad <laughs> you know because I it uh, the more I'm in, the more I'm reading, the more I'm wa- listening and watching, I'm noticing that there does tend to be this kind of, this sense that like, um, s- that it was this like very small intimate community and it's being kind of bombarded now and that it's not feeling as safe. And so now they're having, there's like a lot of these conversations about like, you know, like complicated layered terms like masking and stimming that are suddenly just being thrown around and co-opted uh by a lot of people who you know are just like like me like sort of hyper excited that we have this new thing to talk about and 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 I don't know I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about that so I've been working as an ADHD coach for the last three years or so and I'm gonna say that over that time I've I've noticed that there's consistently always people coming in thinking that they have ADHD. And I can't say that that I've noticed a huge increase over the pandemic. I have on social media, um, but not in in my practice, not in like my local area so much. Um, but I have I, I feel like the demand has always been there. And I think that the pandemic, if anything, reveals something about ADHD, that those structures that we have in place aren't just like tangential to our our coping or our our experience of the world. They're they're very integral in making sure that we get through the day-to-day life. And I actually think that uh, your son's experience is an excellent example of this. Uh, there's something called restraint claps, where when you have restraints put upon you where you're supposed to be acting a specific way. And this can be related to masking for autistic individuals. But for uh, when you have those rules and those routines of like, I'm at school, I do these things at school. Once you're done that experience, you can walk out and just like, everything is done. You're completely exhausted. You, you are, you act out, you're more hyper, you're more ADHD, you're more autistic because, and you're not actually more ADHD or autistic. You just seem it because during that time while you're at school or you're at work, you have rules that hold you in place. The pandemic did a great job of completely obliterating all of those rules. And then making it change over and over and over and over again. Uh, like, for example, I'm thinking, like my experience here in, in, in Canada, working for myself is like very atypical because I've, in March of last year, I said, I'm going to meet my clients online. And I continued to meet my clients online ever since. Everything's been the same. But for a lot of people, it's been this push and pull of like, 
can I go back to the office? Can I, how much space do I have to give? Who, what's, so my office is saying this, but my city is saying this, but my province is saying this, but my country is saying this. And like those changes have completely obliterated the structure that has been holding a lot of people in place. And that made people realize, oh shoot, I actually have a lot of these tendencies. Um, and I think that maybe some of these people will find coping mechanisms that work really well for them during the pandemic and they'll come back to work and they might not need medication or they might need, not need as intensive uh, treatment afterwards. But I think that the ADHD has always been there and it, the pandemic is just revealing it. I, I think, you know, as part of my own learning experience when I first was diagnosed. And again, you know, I had the same issue of like, do I actually have this? Um, yeah. You know, I, I find there, I had this overwhelming fear, even though my therapist who has a PsyD, like has ADHD, she's been telling me for years to get this looked into. And, and I was sort of like, well, no, I'm yeah. not hyperactive or no, I just, you know, like yeah. I, I kind of related more to the bipolar elements, you know, more than mm. I did uh, some of the literature I was seeing, but again, I wasn't really researching it. Um, and then, and so not only was she urging me at, at by the time of, you know, once the pandemic hit and I was really struggling, she was like, you need to I think you need to like really start doing some research and, and looking into this. And then yeah. I went and had the official diagnosis, psychiatric diagnosis. And yet still, I, I often wonder, do I even, is this something I have? Because I feel like, you know, yeah. I've also lived a life of, of, of feeling betrayed and feeling self-doubt and, and not, you know, always not feeling like, is it me or is it the system? And, um, and, and so I think it's, it's kind of meta that there is this element to it, all of our diagnosis, or that this yeah. is a, a, a universal experience that not only are we so grateful to have this diagnosis, but then we have to move on from that to be like, do I even have this? Do I even, is this, <laughs> yeah. um, is this, and then you yeah. add on the next layer of like the medication, is the medication working? Is it not working? I don't know. Is this the right yeah. one for me? What am I even looking for? What am I looking for help with? Am I, how, how am I managing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I lost my train of thought. I don't remember what I was even going to ask about. I think it was something about the fact that like, um, so, oh, I know what it was. Sometimes I think, you know, when they, when they use, throw around the statistic of like, is it f like five to 8% of, of the population is diagnosed. And so sometimes I think there are, there's gotta be way more than five to 8% of the population that, that has this, um, even if you just think about kind of the neurodivergence and if you think about the uh, theory of like the farmer and the, the farmer and the hunter, you know, the, that, that narrative, you know, where I think like um, there must be so many people who are struggling who don't realize that, um, you know, the fact that they've been treated for depression and anxiety and all of these other sort of comorbidities that actually what is happening here is ADHD. And for, for some reasons that I can't articulate, yeah. simply knowing that this is what has happened to you, that, you know, that this is your identity is half the treatment, you know, not, not to belittle medication yeah. and the structures, but I, you know, I feel like the diagnosis itself is, is, is the treatment for me in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
I'm curious when you're, when you, because you work with clients who I guess come to you when they are, have been recently diagnosed, do you feel like ADHD is something that is vastly underdiagnosed or do you feel as though it really is like, there's just a, a spectrum? I would say it really depends on the population. So I think that women are particularly un, underdiagnosed um, for ADHD. Um, and that is a very major problem. And I also think that uh, uh, racial minorities are also very underdiagnosed for ADHD. Uh, but I also think that there's there's like the spectrum and I have no idea as to the validity of those the, the statistics that are commonly put out there about ADHD. It's honestly, such a guess because it's like if you look back at the literature you look at other conditions they'll give you one number and then you'll see that number creep up over the years and I think that's kind of what's happening with ADHD is that it's kind of creeping up over the years um, and that's a result of us testing more people and acknowledging that it's more possible for women and uh, racial minorities to experience ADHD symptoms that we didn't we didn't acknowledge previously. Um, I, like you, have lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. You, you made. I think that's a great segue to talk about autism because I think autism has yeah. has had the same trajectory of sort of like, well, there weren't any autistic kids when I was uh, a kid, so therefore it's made up, or therefore it's it's got to be because of vaccines, or it's got to be because of you know. Uh, um, chemicals and fertilizer or whatever, you know, the reasoning is. And you're like, well, actually it's probably because as awareness grows, diagnosis grows. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, and you have a partner with autism and you work with patients or your clients as well, right? Or do yes. you focus on ADHD? I, I primarily focus on ADHD, but I do uh, kind of, it, I, I, I try to reach out to people who are comorbid or co co have co-occurring ADHD and autism, because I'm going to say that that's kind of the closest to my experience, um, because I'm, I'm probably autistic myself. My partner is autistic and probably ADHD. Uh, so my experience is kind, of is kind of changed in that way of like my relationship with routines, my relationship with, with social communication, my relationship with um, just day-to-day -day activities is very different than somebody who only has ADHD. And sometimes that creates a bit of a communication barrier. So I find that working with clients with both or co-occurring um, really gives me a chance to, to kind of feel at home with them and be able to connect on a much deeper level because there are things that you can struggle to, to understand without that personal experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, you're, I think you're exactly right that autism has been more diagnosed over the, year, over the years. And part of that is because the, the definition of autism has been changing somewhat. Um, and that's because we haven't had a whole lot of knowledge about it in the first place, which, you know, an indictment of the, psycho the psychology and psychiatry system. Um, but at the same time, I do think that we're testing more people and we're recognizing that maybe it's not just boys and maybe it presents a little bit differently in young girls and women. Um, and if anything, that still needs to happen, that we still, again, need to look at how 
autism and ADHD present in women, girls, racial minorities, people who have less advantages in our society, have less of the stereotyped model of, our, of these neurodivergencies so that we can finally be getting the people who are perhaps missing services and suffering as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when we talk so much about how the system has failed us Yeah, <laughs> you know, to really kind of look at all of the different factors of this system and what systems are we talking about? Um, yeah. And that's actually one thing that I noticed quite quickly and, and really appreciate was the magnitude of alternative voices in the ADHD community, you know, that there were yeah. like some of the strongest, um, most like sobering, uh, well, well defined voices were coming from like black women and um, yeah. how wonderful, you know, what it was so refreshing, you know, to be able to lift those voices up and, and, and to at the same time, you know, understand how, like I was saying earlier, like, you know, it never occurred to me because it was my own experience, how, you know, how yeah. much, how many more layers there are to feeling kind of betrayed and misunderstood throughout your whole life. And then you add to that the racial layer, you know, of, of like the yeah. racial layer of emotional regulation as a child and, and, and feeling, you know, just disappointed, you know, that, that extra layer of kind of resentment that, that you can feel like you just weren't, um, you know, you were just so, uh, um, what's the word? Just, uh, you just weren't helped, <laughs> you know, in the way that you needed. Um, so that's yeah. one thing that's been really interesting and, and refreshing about this community as I've kind of learned more and more about it. Yeah, and I definitely think that still needs to happen because as as pri privilege does, it, it kind of reifies itself. It makes itself, it remakes itself over and over again. And one of the things that I think is really important is that we need to acknowledge that in this community, it's still a very different experience to have ADHD as a white man versus a white woman versus like somebody who is black in America versus somebody who's indigenous in Canada, who's, who, who's different, like all of those experiences are very different and they come with different challenges and we need to hear those voices and we need to magnify those voices because they're really important to getting that well-rounded perspective. And I also think that they're, they're really important in chipping away at kind of the systemic racism and the systemic disadvantage that minorities in general face yeah and and again yeah recognizing uh or bringing to light that this is not your problem you know like i thinking about covid and how many you know with with covid and treatment it's brought to light yeah. so many issues in terms of how people are treated in hospitals and the you know the obesity as this comorbidity and it's sort of like, well, obesity is not just sort of something that happens to you because of a moral failing. Like there's so much more involved. You can't just say like people who are yeah. obese are more likely to have this when you're like, no, you're talking about education. You're talking about access to resources. I mean, there's so much more there. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, 
I'm, I'm feeling like it's very difficult for me to keep my train of thought because I'm just feeling like my mind, it's like fireworks are just going off everywhere. Yeah. Um, I love these conversations. It's why I started this podcast. You know, I just love thinking about and exploring these issues. So thank you for that. Raise your hand if you're really good with your diet for a few days or weeks, but you always end up sabotaging your own efforts. Or you fear having certain foods in the house because you feel like you lack the self-control to avoid them when they're there. Or you feel like everyone but you has this whole eating and exercise thing figured out and you just wanna scream, what is wrong with me? Well, guess what? You are not alone. In my book, Worth It, a journey to food and body freedom. I share with you my own history with yo-yo dieting and binge eating from my very first diet at the age of 14 to the nearly 30 years I spent on a merry-go-round of weight loss and weight regain. I also share with you the six essential steps that helped me to finally break free from diet culture and rediscover my health and my self-worth. If you are ready to break free from dieting and binge eating cycle for good and heal your relationship with food and your body, head to worthitwithkatie.com to get your copy of my Worth It book today. I'm learning more and more about the crossovers and um, parallels in in, in the ADHD and autistic experience and in the community. I don't hear a lot about Asperger's. And it's one of those things that I sort of, I always, my father who now, I mean, he'll never be diagnosed for anything. He's too stubborn, but I'm pretty sure he's got, he's got a, he's a mixed bag of, of a lot of things. But yeah. I, you know, I always felt like um, he had Asperger's because from whatever I would read about it and learn about it, I I would see so much of that in him. But I'm, I'm just realizing mm-hmm. like, I don't hear a lot about that in within this uh, neurodivergent community. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, yeah. So there's a really big reason for that. And that's that Asperger's is no longer a diagnosis in the DSM. Okay. (laughs) Uh, It has has been rolled into autism spectrum disorders. Um, Okay. And there's there's also been a move within the neurodivergent community to recognize the the power in naming things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Asperger was an out-and-out Nazi, (laughs) like 1930s German Nazi uh, that experimented on young people with autism. And acknowledging that that was really harmful, a lot of people in the autistic community have moved away from using the term Asperger's. Okay, well, that makes perfect sense then. Oh, but, you know, interesting. I hope I'm not the only person who missed that memo. <laughs> no, no, there are still, there are still people, there are still people with autism or there are still autistic individuals who, who still gravitate towards that term. And there is a somewhat of a divide within uh, the autistic community as to the validity of that term and like how there has been a whole language created around the term of like Aspies and how, how to change that so that we're acknowledging people's humanity, but also eliminate, eliminating that, that tragic history. It's been a relatively recent diet, or it's been a relatively recent change in the community. Mm-hmm. So you're by no means the, the only person who 
who uh, still uses that term or, or what have you. It's just one of those things that things are starting to shift a little bit. Yeah, that. interesting. Yeah, because I think when I think of Asperger's, I think of Greta Thunberg. She's yeah, <laughs> uh, she's always sort of labeled that way. Uh, or she's she's often comes with that label, and I'm curious now what she would have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, that that would be lovely if you could have her on your podcast. <laughs> let me just bring her in. Just just let me put you on hold. I'll bring her in. <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, I think that part of that is the ideas about autism are very different than the ideas about Asperger's. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel like even when you when you were mentioning about your father, it sounds like you you kind of differentiated his his experience uh, of what might be, and I'm not able to diagnose anybody, obviously, but what might be uh, map, today mapped onto autism or, or Asperger's. And the, the media likes to separate those two. Um, there's a narrative that autism is this tragic thing, that it's children drooling with no control, sitting in wheelchairs, whereas Asperger's is this like smart young professor type. And I think that Greta Thunberg, to her, to to her uh, like credit, she is such a wonderful activist and such a, a loud voice. Uh, I feel like she maps onto that historical thing, and I don't know what term she would use for herself, but I, I can almost guarantee that the media is picking up on that difference uh, rather than necessarily the community itself. Right, and so we collectively now we shift we're shifting to the concept of a spectrum much more yeah. just like we are with gender i mean i think gender is one of those things uh that is now where we think of it as a spectrum and we think yeah. of even attraction as a spectrum you know uh, and uh, um so that's yeah all right that's interesting i will ask her the next time i see her uh i wonder if it's also from country to country too if it's a North American, European sense, because it's true. I mean, there is underlying in what I was saying about my father is that sort of sense that one of them is more like higher functioning or, you know, that there's a social aspect to it or something that, that we can kind of place. It's because we like containers so much. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I talk a lot about and, my, my need for containers and, and how, you know, uh, it's so, it's interesting to think about the fact that like how much we need those when it comes to defining people and defining yeah. ideas and beliefs. And if there's anything that defies containers more than autism, I, I don't know what it is because uh, I, I'm going to say that being autistic often comes with a very spiky profile, right? Of you can do these, you can sometimes do these really amazing things that are so unique and powerful, and like they, you're very clearly very advanced in this one area. And then you can also really struggle with this other thing that everybody else has no problem with whatsoever. Mm. And that's one of the key aspects that a lot of autistic people experience is that maybe like, even if you're, you're not thinking of savants, right? Like even just day-to-day -day people, they might be really, really good at this logistics or they might be really good at math to the point where they're able to excel in academic studies 
but they might struggle to take care of themselves in other ways that seem really easy, really easy to neurotypicals. And that's a really interesting way that, a really troubling way that society uses those terms against us is that, well, if you're so good at math, if you're so good at this thing that you do, that you're able to get a PhD in it, why can't you tie your shoes? Or why can't you remember to take your meds on time? And it's like, because those are two completely different things in the autistic mind. And they are two diff completely different things in, in everybody's mind. It's just that it's more apparent for autistic individuals sometimes. Yeah. I think um, uh, one thing I'm realizing too, when it, when it came to like whether or not I medicate, um, because I had no struggle with medication when I thought it was depression and anxiety. Whereas yeah. now... Uh, I had, I really struggled. And, and when I first started interviewing everybody, I was like, the you know, I asked everybody, are you on medication? What's it doing for you? Is it work? Because people say, some people say, yeah. oh my God, it was life-changing. It works. And I was like, what does that mean? How is it working? Um, what is, I don't even know what I'm looking for. And I realized yeah. at some point that I had this fear of losing hyperfocus because hyperfocus was something that I clung to in my identity as as the only thing I had going for me, you know, a lot of the time. Yeah. And so I think that there was that sense of like, if I lose that, if I lose that essence of me through this medication that's going to make me quote unquote normal, you know, how how do I feel about that? Because for for so long that was kind of the one. That was like the, that one good thing. <laughs> and yeah. and so I mean, interesting when you talk about the uh, savant experience, you know, that it was almost like there's the, there's like the good autistic experience and the bad autistic experience. And if you have this one element that you are a savant at, it's like, then you're okay. You know, you're acceptable. You Or the, there's that worth, that, that inherent worth in that, in terms of... Um, as opposed to looking at being able to sort of now realize now I, I don't have that experience because I'm able to appreciate um, the times where I'm like, say, resting, you know, like, for instance, if I'm spending three days hyper-focusing on whatever random thing I've, I've decided I'm going to become an expert in on the internet, and then I yeah. spend the next two days lying on the couch, scrolling through Twitter, um, I appreciate, like, I understand why that is happening and I don't get down on myself for being lazy and I don't think of it as my default state or anything like that. Um, so. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> what, that you still you still get down on yourself for that? Oh, yes, on a daily basis, <laughs> on a daily basis. I Right now, I'm blaming it completely on running my own business because, like, there you might realize that you might feel like this with your podcast as well, is that it just feels like there's always things that could be done. There's always things that. Yeah. yeah I call it building my empire um, because I, you know, one thing I did when, when I fairly soon after I had a diagnosis, uh, I hired a business coach because I, first of all, was able to say to myself, you can't do this without help. You need help. So stop pretending that you're somehow going to figure out the puzzle that's going to get you to do the things you feel like you should be doing. Um, and, uh, so 
I immediately got a business coach and, and she said, you know, she was like, we were talking about the fact that I have all of these ideas and I go after these things and I chase these ideas and then I never, I don't get anything done. And she was, and the first thing she did was like, keep a master list of all of your ideas and put them there. And yeah, you're, I'm sure you do this with your clients where she's like, and you know, call it whatever you want, but you can't touch that list. It's just a brain dump and you can't touch that list until you've come, you, you need a runway and, and figure out what are the milestones on the runway that you need to accomplish with this one task before you can then even look at, at the list. And it's been so incredibly helpful for me with my business because I, you know, I feel like on the one hand, so many of us work for ourselves because we can't work for other people (laughs) and have a lot of difficulty working for others. Um, but then there's like all this baggage that comes with being an entrepreneur, which is, which is, you know, structures and, and, and accountability and all of these things we really struggle with and budgeting and, and, you know, so many things that I felt like I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't like, is there any situation in which, um, I will be at peace. (laughs) You know, I often think like, ideally I would be working for somebody at their bookstore, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the, you know, those are, those are the daydreams I have when I'm like, what do I really want to be? I just want to chuck all of this and I just want to work yeah. for somebody at their bookstore because that's like, I feel like that's like my version of, of mental peace. I'm really interested in that actually. Cause that's something that I've been considering myself lately is that I had this nagging question in my head of, will I ever feel satisfied? Do you kind of have that experience as well? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I was, I, I broke down with my therapist yesterday about that same issue, which was like, you know, because I've really been struggling with, with whether or not I should continue coaching, whether or not I even enjoy it, you know, because, um, and, and, and because there's so much of the like hustle that I feel so uncomfortable with. And, and, you know, and and so I had that same conversation, which was like, I just want to take the path that is going to come with the least amount of emotional baggage. And I haven't found that yet. And so, (laughs) um, so is that just light, you know, because we, you know, she got into what I don't like. I hope she's not listening to this episode, but like, you know, one thing I really, I don't know if this happens to you, but if somebody starts to tell you like, oh, well, this is what you need to do, then you shut down. Yeah, I shut down and I'm sort of like, no, don't tell me what to do. I don't, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm in a position of weakness with you. So if you're suddenly telling me that all of my problems would go away if I, you know, did this one thing, I, yeah. I just completely shut down and I got really defensive and um, felt like, um, yeah, I just, yeah, I started just focusing on like, am I always, am I always going to feel um, like there's that better version of me, that better situation on the horizon? Yeah. The way that my partner talks about it and she tries to really talk me out of this uh, quite a bit is that um, having something on the horizon gives us a reason to move forward, right? Um, And it feels really bad to always feel like there's something that we're aiming for and we're always kind of just missing. Um, But I, I think that she has a point there, even though I have a really hard time internalizing that point of like, yeah, it gives me something to aim for of like, I I was able to save for a house, like I was able to buy a car. And these are things that like asking little me at like 
18, I don't know that I would have had the confidence to be able to say, oh yeah, that's definitely a possibility in my future. Moving across the country, starting my own business. And I feel like, yeah, it's really awesome that we continue to move forward. Um, and it, it's really awesome to continue to have goals. I, I really think that that's really, really powerful. But at the same time, you're right. I feel like it comes with a little bit of that emotional baggage of like, is this ever going to be enough? Because like getting a house, then you realize, oh, well, not only do I want a house, but I also want, mm-hmm. but I yeah. also want. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I think that's something that we don't talk about enough, which is the, that sort of overwhelming sense of depression or disappointment that comes from the completion of a task (laughs) you know that especially you know the bigger the task the bigger the sense of 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 disappointment when it's over because so much of the um, excitement was wrapped up in in figuring out how to accomplish it and so then when it's done you you have that letdown that come, you know, where you're sort of like, well, all right, what's, what now? That, that in-between time before you find your next hyper-focus. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a, tw- a tweet saved in my, in my drafts exactly, almost exactly like that. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so just to backtrack a little bit, and um, I know we're, I can't believe we're already running out of time, but I wanted to find out sort of how you became an ADHD coach. What in your education led you to yeah. this path? Yeah. So my background is in psychology. So I have a master's in, in psychology and an undergraduate degree in developmental psychology and women and gender studies. Um, and honestly, I have always wanted to be working with clients in one way or another. When I was younger, that was as a counselor or a therapist or a psychologist. Um, and then when I got out of school with my master's, there is an ADHD coaching job at the local uh, Learning Disabilities Association. And I'm like, oh, well, that's that seems like a lovely thing to try for right now to make sure that I'm, and I'm, I just loved it. I love it because I get to see the excitement in new clients' eyes when I when we talk about strategies that can help them like new client day is always the best day because I get to I get to know somebody new I get to talk to somebody new and they're they're like not to reduce them to a puzzle because they're far more than that but it feels like a puzzle to try to figure out of like hey what are what are the things that you what's your experience what like I I'm looking for for like those things of like oh let's let's pull on these strings and see how those things come come out and and then also being able to feel like at the end of it, they walk away with something meaningful that they can do, not just, and this is not to in any way minimize what counseling or coaching or counseling or therapy does for, for people. But I know that sometimes those things can take longer to hit of like, you're unpacking this deep trauma. Whereas with coaching, I really love that you can walk in you can talk to your, you can talk to a coach, we can figure something out. I mean, at the end of the session, it can be like, okay, let's try these specific strategies and then come back and tell me what things worked about them, what things didn't work about them. And then the next time it's like, okay, great. Like you love these things, you hate these things. Let's try to figure out something new. It's such an active problem solving process that I just fell in love with. I, yeah. I love, I love it so much. Yeah. We are definitely the hardest workers. <laughs> Uh, when it um, when it comes to kind of trying to figure this stuff out, 
And one thing I struggle with with my own coach, which I probably shouldn't say this as a coach because I do this for clients too, which is like, I have a really hard time keeping track of um, what's working and what isn't working because I don't have time for that. You know, yeah. so, you know, so I much prefer face-to-face conversation. And she's always asking me, like, she's always checking in and being like, how are things going this week? And I was like, I, I can't just type you an email. I have to like talk to you about this. Um, yeah. So it's definitely my own experiences has, has changed how I coach too. And, yeah. And also realizing, I think, you know, it's really, I'm realizing how, important it is, which has helped me just in terms of realizing the, what I have to offer, you know, and, and what we have to offer each other in, in coaching experiences. And, and that just because I'm a hot mess doesn't mean I'm not also a good coach. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And the way that I like to describe it to clients is that my role is to bring strategies to them, the strategies that worked for me, the strategies that didn't work for me, the strategies that worked for my clients, the strategies that didn't work for my clients. And we're supposed to hodgepodge together some system that works for them, right? So like me failing is part of the process of like my me struggling with these things is part of the process that helps my clients feel reassured that, hey, you understand it because you've been there. You understand this because like, you go through your routines and it just pops out of your head and it's gone forever. And like, you have to rebuild that from scratch. And that's a very hard thing for somebody that doesn't experience that to talk to. So I think that that's one of the things that, that ADHD clients like about having ADHD coaches that have ADHD is that we are hot messes and we're able to see through the, see through that anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There is an immediate shorthand there. <laughs> It's been so delightful finally getting to talk to you. I was really looking forward to this interview. So thank you. Um, and um, so where can clients find you? You are, you are entirely virtual, right? You live in Saskatoon. Woohoo. Yeah. Uh, but you're entirely virtual with your clients. And um, so how can somebody work with you? How can somebody find you? Yeah. So I can be found on Twitter or Instagram at structured S-U-C-C. Um, or you can find me on my website at structuredsuccess.ca. Um, I'm always I'm always looking for more people to chat with. I'm always I love interacting with people. So if you if you spot me on social media, feel free to interact. Uh, I'm I'm excited to do so. Yeah, your your Twitter account is like little like Buddhist wisdom snippets throughout the day. I love it. And and often with topics, I always sort of feel like I'm at the point now where I'm like, I trust Maya, where I'm like, I'm going to, what does Maya have to say about this? <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. But I am also going to urge you to keep a critical mind because I have my biases as well. I under no, I understand that. I think, like I said, I just feel like there's something. It feels like you're the adult in the room. I, I don't want to put too much pressure on you, though. Of course, <laughs> I, I really, I especially appreciate that because from my side, it does not feel like that at all. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's something somebody else is experiencing as well. Is that they, they're they're out there feeling like, oh no, I'm like struggling to get by. Well, sometimes that's good enough for the outside world. Um, And I just realized I forgot to ask, this is a new question I've been asking during my interviews, which I threw out at at you, uh, which is if you could rename ADHD, because the name is so problematic often, um, what would you call it? Uh, I was just going to say, like, 
I love all of this talk about the spectrum and just the way in which we kind of really need to redefine the way we define things. <laughs> so, so I'm realizing as I'm asking this question, I'm like, here's me looking for strict containers and definitions again, and maybe I should stop asking this stuff. But anyway, yeah. if, you're, if you feel like there's a better name for it, what would you call it? There's actually a really interesting movement in psychology at the moment to move away from diagnostic labels entirely and to move towards kind of dimensions of experience, which I think is really cool. Also kind of niche. I don't know how it will work. I'm interested in learning more. But if I had to pick something, I'd probably go with something like neurodevelopmental emotion and attention dysregulation, something like that. Still a nice acronym, but... I'm not a big fan of the acronyms. I would love a word. Yeah, yeah. or something like uh, neurodevelopmental executive dysfunction, which kind of gets those points of like, it's more about executive dysfunction than anything else. Um, yeah, see, I knew, see, that here's a situation where I was like, I knew, I want to know what Maya has to say about this. <laughs> Um, that's wonderful. I so appreciate your your perspective, and I feel very grateful for the ways in which you have enlightened me on my own journey. And so, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. I I also want to thank you for being such a, a lovely, gracious host. There you have it. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also. As you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com, or on Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower, and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at women and ADHD. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is women and ADHD podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.